Hello, welcome to Bill's Facebook studies. Yes, it's a couple of minutes after three o'clock and oh ye of little faith. Yes, I am here. Glad to be with you. Sorry I'm a couple of minutes late, but I hope that you're still tuned in. I apologize for missing on Tuesday. I was sick. I tried to teach my Bible class on uh, Sunday morning and couldn't do it. I had to go home and uh, some folks, wonderful folks covered for me here. And that's the end of that story. So I'm just glad to be able to be feeling a little bit better. In fact, a lot better and glad to be able to be with you today. We're going through uh, the readings from the Daily Bible in chronological order. That is edited and compiled by F. Lagarde Smith. And today we're going to be looking at several stories that <clears throat> are uh, pretty significant and really, really, really interesting, I think. Uh, some of them are a bit odd, and some of them are uh, better. Uh, and uh, all of them, of course, have a message for us today. So buckle up, and we're going to go through some of these. And I want to begin with the story about um, Aaron's rod, this budding rod uh, that we've read about over the last uh, week or two. The Israelites, as you know, while Moses was leading them through uh, the uh, wilderness, uh, were always complaining, always griping. They always found something that was going on that they didn't like, and they made sure that their leaders knew about it. I hope you're not that way. <laughs> I hope that when you see problems, you try to resolve them yourself, and if you can't, you try to let them go, and if they're too big for uh, either of those, then you go to someone, including possibly your leaders. Uh, but that shouldn't be the first default mechanism. Uh, but it was for the Israelites, and they ran to Moses, and they complained. And one of those times uh, we read about in Numbers 16 through 18, and there were some of the other tribes. Remember, Moses and Aaron were descendants of Levi, one of the 12 sons of uh, Jacob, and uh, Jesus descended from Judah, uh, another one of those. But Levi was the tribe of people that worked uh, with Moses and Aaron in the tabernacle, and um, Aaron was a descendant of Levi, and Aaron was called to be the priest, the high priest, and then the males after him would be priests. So you had the Levites and you had the priests, and you had all of the other Israelites as well. Uh, but only the descendants of Aaron would be the priests. And so some of the other uh, Israelites said, wait, 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 that's no good. Uh, <clears throat> and they said, how come, how come the tribe of Levi and, and the family of Aaron get all the glory? That's no good. And so God had pretty much had enough. But uh, he tells Moses, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. Get each leader from each of the 12 tribes and have them bring their staff or their rod, their walking stick, and and bring them and leave them overnight. And uh, I'll show you who I want to lead my people. And sure enough, the next morning, Aaron's walking stick, this dead stick, this rod, this staff, had blossomed and had buds on it and uh, uh, was bearing fruit. It was the weirdest thing, but it showed to all of the people that, yes, God had called Aaron to be the priest. It wasn't just something that Aaron and Moses dreamed up uh, together. And so that was one of those great stories 
uh, that we got to read about. Another one is uh, the reason why Moses, one of the reasons anyway, why Moses wasn't able to go into the promised land. Uh, if you recall your Bible history and uh, uh, as we get closer and closer to uh, getting to the law, we'll see this played out later on. But um, Moses, when they get to the banks of the Jordan River, is not allowed to enter, even though he'd led God's people for the last 40 years of his life. Um, but God, uh, the people were whining and complaining, and they said there was no water, no water. And so God told Moses on one occasion, speak to the rock and uh, water will come out. Well, Moses doesn't do that. He strikes the rock. I think in one case, God had commanded him to do that. But in another case, uh, he had not. And it could be that Moses' pride got away with him, his anger, something. But he strikes the rock without God's uh, blessing. And God says, well, because you took pride in yourself and, and tried to set up yourself uh, above me, then, um, then you will not enter the promised land. When they do get there, that does seem kind of unfair. But when they finally get there, God doesn't let him in, but he does give him a view, a panoramic scene of the promised land. And ultimately, Moses climbs up on Mount Nebo and uh, never comes down. And, uh, and so Moses is unable to go because he kind of let things uh, get away from him. And then another really interesting story uh, that we read about is found uh, in also in the book of Numbers. And it involves uh, a time when Israel was uh, lined up, uh, uh, lots of people, lots of strength, uh, and uh, the other nations around them were getting kind of threatened by it all. And of course, as they traveled through, ultimately Joshua will lead them and they will enter the promised land. But right now they're just trying to get there. And yet along the way, God is, of course, blessing them. Well, in Numbers 22, you have this really, really interesting story of uh, the king of Moab who hires this prophet by the name of Balaam. And the, the uh, king of Moab's name is Balak. And he hires Balaam and he tells him, go up on a mountain and prophesy against the Israelites. Well, Balaam says, no, 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 I don't, I don't want the job. No, thanks. And Balak says, oh, I make me an offer I can't refuse, man. I will give you all the money you want, everything you want. And Balaam said, look, I, the Lord has told me, don't go, don't go. And he makes the offer really super sweet. And I think Balaam in his heart really, really wanted to go. And so God finally says, okay, fine, you can go, but you can't say anything other than what I tell you to say. Well, you know, Balaam is funding all, uh, Balak, the king of Moab is funding all of this. And so he's going to pay Balaam all of this and Balaam ends up going, but God is still displeased. He's still displeased. And so as they go along, Balaam on his donkey, uh, going along, um, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, and he has his sword raised, ready to strike, and he just goes down. Well, um, Balaam beats him, and he tries to stop Balaam from going, and yet Balaam beats him again, and he does it again, and finally... Um, as Balaam is beating his donkey, and, and this is, this is the, what happens in Numbers 22 
and um, that section, it says that God opened the mouth of the donkey. Now, I, I know, I know, that's kind of, kind of weird, kind of weird, but that's the story uh, in Numbers uh, 22. The donkey sees the angel of the Lord, uh, but Balaam doesn't, and uh, the donkey goes down. He he hurts Balaam in the process, and and yet Balaam continues to try to get him. Well, in Numbers 22, starting in verse 28, then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, "What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times?" Now. If that were me, and I was Balaam, and my donkey started talking to me, I gotta say, I, I, it would have taken smelling salts to wake me back up, because I, that would have been it. And scripture doesn't record every detail of every incident, we know that. And so there could be a lot more to this story. But one of the things that amazes me about this story, of course, is that God allowing this donkey to, to uh, be a voice from the Lord saying, what, what are you doing? And um, and the other thing that strikes me about this is that Balaam responds to the donkey like this is something that happens every day. Balaam answered the donkey, you have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. Well, I, I, just, I just think there's more to this than what we know. But what we do know is that God opens the mouth of the donkey, allows him to speak the way Balaam would understand him, and um, and he tells him, what have I done to you? Why are you beating me? And Balaam just get, jumps right in and responds to the donkey, you, you're making a fool of me. I tell you, if I had a sword, I'd kill you right here. Uh, and then the donkey said to Balaam, this conversation keeps going, the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? So now the donkey is reasoning with his owner. No, Balaam answers. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, Numbers 22 verse 31 says, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared the donkey. Well, we don't hear any more from the donkey. I think he's made his point. And now the angel is telling Balaam, here's what's really happening. And so Balaam said, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So it's one of those weird, weird stories. Um, the talking donkey. Yeah, it's not just a Disney show. It is, it is a story from the Bible. And it saved Balaam's life for the moment. And so he goes and he meets Balak, the king of Moab, and he takes him to a high place. He he looks down and he sees all the Israelites, and um, and and Balaam is forced to say what the Lord gives him to say. I mean, he could have disobeyed, but he's he's had enough of that. 
And so he pronounces blessing on Israel and curses on those who oppose them. And, and Balak says, look, that's not what I hired you to do. Let's try this again. They do it again and same thing. Balaam blesses Israel. So Balak says, let's try this one more time. It, maybe, maybe don't curse them. That's what I paid you to do, but don't bless them for goodness sake. And yet when he does, he, he blesses them all over again. And so Balak is very angry at Balaam in Numbers 24. And he says, I summon you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave it once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. And Balaam tries to reason with him and figure out um, a way to be paid. Uh, but um, uh, Balak is the king. And Balaam has been through all of this. And you would think, you know, after all of this, there would be a way for um, Balaam to join in with the Israelites. They must, this must be from God, but he doesn't. He's found with Israel's enemies, and later on, uh, he is killed in battle along with some of Israelite's enemies in uh, the land. It's just a, a very sad, very strange uh, thing, but very sad for Balaam but a powerful message uh, that the Lord is looking out for his people and is going to bless his people. Uh, we keep reading in uh, Numbers, and there we come to this place where uh, some of the Israelites are saying, you know, I kind of like this, this land. Remember, they're going from Egypt uh, towards uh, uh, the, uh, the, the place in Israel, Palestine, and they kind of go around it from the south, and now they're coming towards it, and they're going to cross uh, the Jordan River and go into Palestine in between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and some of the Israelites kind of like that land on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, uh, two and a half of the tribes, uh, uh, and they they go to to Moses and they say, "Look, we want to settle here." And Moses first says, "No, no, no! You got to fight for your for your brothers for this land, just like everybody else does." And they said, "Oh, no, no! We will, we will, um, but we want uh, to be on this side uh, of, of the Jordan, uh, the tribes of Reuben, tribe of Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, one of the sons of Joseph. And they tell him, no, we'll go, well, our men will go fight, but this land on this side of the Jordan is actually perfect for us. And if you'll go ahead and give us this, this land, we will definitely fight, uh, for our Israelites and for our fellow Israelites. And, and it ultimately happens. There's this big, Big thing that we'll read about in the days of Joshua, but we'll save that for another time. So when you hear about the two and a half Eastern tribes, that's where this comes from. Uh, and when you look in your Bible maps and you see a map of the 12 tribes of Israel, you'll see uh, the tribes of Reuben and Gad and part of Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan, and then everybody else will be on the west side of the Jordan. And this is where uh, that comes from. Well, I want us to read one other, uh, one other uh, story or, or mention one other 
story, and it's it's found in Numbers 21. And it's one of those interesting uh, stories where you have uh, the people of Israel are whining and complaining and griping, and once again, uh, God has had enough. And so he tells Moses, okay, here's, here's what to do. I want you to get a snake of brass, a brazen snake, uh, build it and design it and put it up high so that everybody can see it. And uh, But before then, um, he punishes his people. They've been whining and complaining and griping, and so God sends poisonous snakes in Numbers 21. And the people are bitten and they die. When they're bitten, they die. There's no surviving it. Uh, more poisonous than a Texas rattlesnake, I guess. <laughs> but when they're bitten, they die. And so the Israelites repent, like they always do, and they cry out to Moses, please pray to God for us and get these snakes out of here. And so Moses does. The great intercessor once again prays to God for the people, for forgiveness and deliverance. And God says, okay, here's what we'll do. And that's when he tells him about this brass snake. I want you to take that brass snake and put it up high so that everyone can see it. And whenever someone is bitten, if they will look at this brass snake, again, this is Numbers 21, then they will, they will be saved. They won't die. And that's what happened. And it's interesting that uh, God didn't just take the snakes away. He could have done that. Nor did he shut their mouths so that the snakes were there, but they weren't biting anybody. Nor another option would have been to leave the snakes there, to go ahead and let them bite people, but they wouldn't die. They would be non-poisonous. He could have done any of those three things, but he didn't. Instead, he says, build this brass snake, raise it up high so that everyone can see it. And the ones who look at that brass snake after they've been bitten, they will not die. And that's exactly what happened. And it was a great time of deliverance. Again, the people of Israel seeing the hand of the Lord in his holiness and his mercy. They see his holiness as he punishes them for being disobedient and their lack of faith and disrespecting the leadership, not just of Moses, but of God himself. And, uh, but they also see his mercy as they cry out to him and he forgives them and allows a way for them to be saved. Well, unfortunately, the bad news in this is that later on in the time of Hezekiah, one of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, again, we'll get to that later, but ultimately the the Israelites form a nation and, and call forth a king, and then later on um, the nation divides, and you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and ultimately one of the kings in the southern kingdom in the time of Isaiah is King Hezekiah. And he makes this great effort to reform the Israelites, take away all their false gods and all their false idols and all of that. And one of the idols that he destroys is this brass snake. In the days of Hezekiah, according to 2 Kings 18, uh, that bronze snake that uh, Moses had made and had saved the Israelites, although God had saved the Israelites, um, years later, sometime later, they took that snake and they began to worship it instead of the God who brought deliverance through it. Uh, it's a sad, sad story. And that's a pretty powerful story, but it becomes even more powerful in the New Testament. 
Because in the New Testament, you know that great scripture in John 3, verse 16, where Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, uh, that whoever would believe in him should not perish or die, but have eternal life. Well, leading up to that, in John chapter 3, uh, Jesus talks about how he came not to judge the world, but he came to, um, uh, to save the world. And in John 3, uh, Jesus takes us back to that story of this bronze snake and the story uh, from the book of Numbers. And he calls on them to remember that story. And he tells them, just like Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so the idea there is that it's clearly referring to crucifixion. And everyone that Jesus uh, said that to and heard those statements in John 3, um, they would know that's what he's talking about. The Son of Man must be lifted up, lifted up on a cross. And Jesus likens it to the salvation and deliverance that came through that bronze snake uh, from the book of Numbers, from the Old Testament Jewish history, how Moses lifted up that snake in the desert and the people that were bitten by the poisonous snakes, they didn't die. And the idea was they would look at that snake in faith, trusting in the God who had promised to deliver them if they did. And now Jesus takes that story and he applies it to himself in John 3. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up. For God so loved the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Why? Because he gave his one and only Son, and he had him lifted up on that cross of Calvary, the Latin Golgotha, the term that means the place of the skull in Greek. Just as that snake was lifted up, and the people who looked to it in faith were saved. The Son of Man, Jesus said, must be lifted up. And everyone who looks to him in faithful obedience, that, that obedient faith that the Bible talks about, would be saved, would live, and would not die. And that's the promise for us today as well. Uh, earlier in John chapter 3, Jesus had told the Jewish leader who came to him at night, Nicodemus, you must be born again of water and the Spirit if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that being born again of water and Spirit was a clear reference to baptism. Nicodemus would understand it as nothing else. And that's why he responded the way he did when he says, what, born again of water and Spirit? Does that mean I have to crawl back into my mother's womb and be born? No way. That's how ridiculous it sounded to Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, one of the Jewish leaders. He could never be baptized like these rabble of Jewish peasants did when John the Baptist came preaching and now Jesus and his disciples. But that's what Jesus told him. The obedience of faith, the trusting obedience to Jesus and his call. And that's why he says in John 3, just like that snake, was raised up and lifted up in the in the desert by Moses. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus did that for you, and he did that for me.
the most cruel death man could ever imagine. Jesus experienced it for us so that we uh, could live with him forever. Some great, great stories as you go through this reading. Uh, Aaron's rod, <laughs> a dead stick that blossoms and blooms and grows fruit. Uh, a talking donkey, really, seriously. Um, and this story of this poisonous snakes that were uh, killing all the people until that bronze snake was lifted up in the desert and the people were called to look upon it with eyes of faith and be saved. Uh, now we look upon the one who was crucified on that cross 2,000 years ago and we look upon him and we call on him as our Lord and our Master and our Savior. And it's, um, it's the, the thing that, that saves us. The blood that was shed there, the life that was given there, the death, burial, and resurrection, that empty tomb that gives us hope, the most important event in all of human history, and foreshadowed in the Old Testament in the days of Moses with this obscure story of a bronze snake. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. I look forward to seeing you on Sunday. Well, actually, seeing you on Sunday. Well, actually, I won't be preaching this Sunday, so you'll hear a wonderful Eric Thornton again this time, <laughs> having been prepared. Last Sunday, I was sick, and he jumped in at the last minute and did a great, great job. I know firsthand because I watched it. And now um, he'll be preaching again this Sunday, and then I'll see you next Tuesday as we continue this walk through the Old Testament. and. Brace yourselves. Uh, we're about to start on uh, the laws of Moses. And Ethelgard Smith has them arranged just like a good attorney would, which is what he is. And I think it might even be helpful for you uh, and informative to you as we go through this section on the law. In the meantime, remember the one who was lifted up for you and look to him in faith. God bless.